leading us today. How are we doing? Are we good? Well, if you're not, hopefully you will be soon. If you are, hopefully you'll be better soon. Um, we're in the series, after all, called The Life You've Always Wanted, um, based on the book by John Ortberg. And really, it's a book about spiritual disciplines. And as we started the series a few weeks ago, I shared with you that the month of October is really looking at um, the introduction to spiritual disciplines and how we view spiritual disciplines. And we're really going to look into that more next week about shifting our focus about how we view spiritual disciplines and how we use them um, or how God intended us to use them to grow in our faith or to grow in our relationship with him and somehow how they get misused. And last week, um, we started a conversation about the Pharisees and how the Pharisees started as a group of people who, when they came out of captivity, in the, the nation, when the nation of Israel came out of captivity and back into their original land, they wanted to make sure that they never forsook the commands of God again. So they established the synagogue where the community would come together every week and they would talk about the text. They would read the text. They would memorize the text. They would study the text. They did not want to forsake the commands of God again. And the Pharisees were this group of, of men, basically, that were the teachers, that were the experts in the law, and they were helping the people to learn it. So it started out very good. But by the time 400 years later, when we get introduced to the Pharisees in the New Testament, they're not the heroes. I mean, nobody ever reads the Bible and is like, oh, I want to be a Pharisee when I grow up. But yet they were, for all intents and purposes, when they started, they were the people you wanted to be. They were the righteous people. They were the people that they intended. And if, you, if you've ever noticed that um, it's hard to notice change in ourselves or in other people when we see each other every day. But if you go like a long time without seeing someone and then all of a sudden the next time you see them, you're like, whoa, your hair is like so gray. Like, how did that that happen? Or or whoa, you've put on some weight or lost some weight or done some. I mean, because we don't see them for a while, we totally recognize that they've changed. But if you see someone every day, you don't always recognize that over time that hair grayed. And all of a sudden you're like, wow, when did your hair gray? Um, and that's what's happened with the Pharisees in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense. Over time, incrementally, they, they missed the whole point of what the law was teaching. And they didn't intend for that to happen. But over 400 years, that's what happened. And so as we started looking into the book, the, the first chapter, The Hope of Trans Transformation, introduced us to what God's original design for mankind was from the beginning. And that it hopefully put in us this idea that when Jesus came, what he came to do was restore us back to the creation God intended us to be. And that there is hope for transformation. Not just hope to be a better version of what we used to be. But a transformation that changes us into a totally different being Different thoughts, different mind, different ideas, different mindset. God's ways are higher than ours. We're being transformed into his likeness. 
And yes, the scripture speaks of that in a term where it's already done through what Christ has done for us. And yet we're actually becoming it as we live out our daily lives. And again, that'll really be something we talk about next week. So salvation is not about what happens to us when we die. Salvation is about the restoration of humanity. And yes, what happens to us when we die is a part of it. That's not all of it. And in the church over the years, I feel like we've incrementally gotten to the place where now salvation is just, hey, what happens after you die? Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And my question and John's question is, do you know how you're going to live tomorrow now that you're alive? I mean, and if you live that way, where you're going to go when you die isn't even a question. Because you're living the new life that God intended you to have. And then the idea of settling for pseudo-transformation is what we started talking about last week. um, And the boundary markers. The Pharisees began to focus on what, what he defines as boundary markers. Circumcision. The dietary laws. Sabbath keeping. And why did they focus on those things? Because those were the things that set them apart. Those were the things they could look at and see who was a practicing Jew and who was not. Who was righteous and who was not. And those are things that you can look at and see and judge. And over time, that's what became important. Now, if you would have sat down the Pharisees at the beginning and said, Hey, what do you think is the most important thing in the law? None of them would have said circumcision. The Sabbath, uh, dietary laws, those are the main things that God wanted us to know. No, those weren't the main things. But over time, those became the main things because those were the markers that were easier to recognize. And for you and I, those markers are the same, only different. He talked about the pastor that would, could be full of greed, full of pride, and the church would be like, well, that's, you know, we all have flaws. But if the pastor stood outside after church and smoked a cigarette, That pastor wouldn't be there next week because we look at things and they're depending on the type of congregation you grew up in or the type of uh, understanding of the scripture you had. Different things were bad and shouldn't be participated in. Some of you maybe grew up thinking you shouldn't dance. Dancing is a sin because it separates those who are believers from unbelievers. And so we're not going to give you a list of what those markers are because for all of us, they're going to be different. But it doesn't change the fact that those are the boundary markers and not the transformation that God is looking for from the inside out. The Apostle Paul, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he is bringing in the Old Testament, talking to the Corinthian church, and the promise or the the statement that God made to the people in the Old Testament, he reminds them in the New Testament. Verse 17 says, Therefore, Come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And so, in a sense, we read that. We understand that we should be different. We should be set apart. We should live lives that are different from someone that doesn't have the Spirit of God living in them. And so it's no question that we should be transformed. The question is, where do we focus our attention? And sometimes we fall into the trap of focusing too heavily on the externals. John Ortberg writes it this way. With this in mind, 
the importance of circumcision and dietary laws and Sabbath keeping in the first century becomes clear. These are the boundary markers. The highly visible, relatively superficial practices that allowed people to distinguish who was inside and who was outside the family of God. What is worse, the insiders become proud and judgmental toward outsiders. They practiced what might be called a boundary-oriented approach to spiritual life. Just look at people and you will know who are the sheep and who are the goats. This is pseudo-transformation. And Jesus steps into this scene and he starts focusing on the heart, the center of spiritual life, telling them, I didn't come to abolish the law, I didn't come to deny that there are boundaries, but I came to bring you a genuine transformation of the heart. And the essence of it all was to love God and love people. In Matthew chapter 22, we're told that the Sadducees and the Pharisees, two different groups that many times we lump together as the same, but the Bible tells us they didn't get along. The Sadducees are the groups that that are in charge. They're the Levitical priesthood. They're in charge of the temple. They're in charge of the sacrifices. They're in charge of all of the things that would happen in Jerusalem. They were the political ruling party. Now, the Sanhedrin would consist mostly of the Sadducees, but they also allowed some of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the common people that studied the law and lived out in the, the outskirts out in the places beyond Jerusalem. They were the ones that interacted with the people on a regular basis and taught them the law and taught them the scriptures and helped them to become the people that God wanted them to be or to put on, put God on display. So the Sadducees come and they try to trap Jesus and trick Jesus with different questions. It's actually the Sadducees that end up killing Jesus because Jesus overturns the tables. He upsets the political power, if you will, in Jerusalem. He threatens their existence. He threatens what they have established, and that ultimately leads him to his death. But the Pharisees, after Jesus silences the Sadducees, we're told in verse 34, the Pharisees get together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is a debate that Jewish scholars, um, teachers of the law, rabbis, would have had in the first century. What's the, what's the crux of it all? What's the main thing, if you will? Most of them agreed on what was the main thing, but there were two different camps that disagreed on what was the second main thing, if you will. And so one group believed that keeping the Sabbath was the most important second commandment, and one group believed that What Jesus says, loving your neighbor, was the second commandment. So Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus isn't saying these are the only two commandments. But he's saying if you focus on these two things and you work from the inside out, you'll fulfill the rest of the law. All of the other boundary markers will fall into place. But if you focus on the boundary markers first and try to work your way in, you'll never get there. You'll never come to a place where you love God and love people by focusing from the outside in. 
You have to focus from the inside out. The Apostle Paul warns of this. Oh, and by the way, that's chapter 22. Then Matthew takes the next chapter and he goes into chapter 23 of Matthew. And we're going to look at that in depth here in a second. And he pronounces, Jesus pronounces woes on the Pharisees. So he tells them, here's the two commandments. And then in the very next chapter, he's going to show them how they got it all wrong. <laughs> That's very encouraging. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says it this way. If I speak in the tongue of men or angels, but I do not have love. Now that, that word love does not mean that I have warm emotional feelings about people. That's not what love is in the scripture. Love in the scripture is self-sacrificing. It's a giving of myself. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's love. Jesus didn't have to have warm emotions about us in order to do that. He did it because God placed value on human life. And because of that, Jesus gave his life on behalf of others. That's love. That's agape. And so Paul says, if I do not practice that kind of love, if I do not display love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I mean, I can speak in every language of earth and heaven. But without love, it's just a lot of noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Then you could tell everybody today why all things are happening the way they are. And you would always be right. I know that we all think we are always right, but we're not. But you could know all the mysteries and you could know which is Gog and which is Magog and which where who the Antichrist is. And you could know all the mysteries there are to know. You can have all knowledge. You can have faith to move mountains. But if I do not have love, Nothing. Outside in, inside out. If I give all I possess to the poor, outside in, and give my body to hardship, outside in, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Inside out. It's not that we should not give to the poor. It's not that we should not surrender our body to hardship. It's not that we shouldn't try to have faith to move mountains. It's not that we shouldn't seek prophecy and the mysteries of God. We should. But we can't go outside in. We have to go inside out. 1 John 4, 8, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. He doesn't just love. <laughs> he is love. And so if he resides in us, so does love, because it's who he is. So if there's no love, there's no God. There might be a moral code. There might be a lot of religious externals. But without the transformation of the heart, there's no God. That's what Paul, Jesus, John Ortberg are trying to get us to wrestle with. To make sure we go from the inside out. John Ortberg writes it this way. Here's another quote from his book. Of course, many beliefs and values will inevitably divide those who choose to follow Christ from those who don't. Jesus himself said he came not to bring peace but a sword. But what makes something a boundary marker 
is it's being seized upon by the group as an opportunity to reinforce a false sense of superiority, fed by the intent to exclude others. Religious boundary markers change from generation to generation. A boundary-oriented approach to spirituality focuses on people's position. Are you inside or outside the group? A great deal of energy is spent clarifying what counts as a boundary marker. But Jesus consistently focused on people's center. Are they oriented and moving toward the center of spiritual life, love of God and people? Or are they moving away from it? This is why he shocked people by saying many religious leaders who observed all the recognized boundary markers were in fact outside the kingdom of God. And this is why Jesus could say that the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were a million miles away from the religious subculture, but who had turned, converted, and oriented themselves toward God and love were already in the kingdom. This was the great irony of his day, and I would say of our day. The righteous were more damaged by their righteousness than the sinners were by their sin. Getting clear on what spiritual life looks like is no casual affair. This is life or death to the soul. Sheldon Van Eucken wrote that the strongest argument for Christianity is Christians when they are drawing life from God. The strongest argument against Christianity? Also Christians when they become exclusive, self-righteous, and complacent. Dallas Willard writes, How many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied. Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality with the freedom of God's loving rule. Spirituality wrongly understood or pursued is a major source of human misery and rebellion against God. I don't think any of these Christians that are miserable that are described here want to be miserable. But we've settled for a pseudo-transformation that is trying to keep all the laws and trying to make everyone else keep them also. And that becomes exhausting and wearisome. And that was never the spiritual life God intended for us. So, how do I know? if I'm setting for settling for pseudo-transformation instead of the real thing? Well, John gives us some questions to wrestle with, and you can write these down. Um, I'll put them on the screen at the end if you want to take a picture of them or write them down later. But um, the first question he wants us to wrestle with is, am I spiritually authentic? Am I spiritually authentic? Matthew chapter 23. Jesus, writing or speaking to the Pharisees, says, Woe to you teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Spiritual authenticity, or inauthentic spirituality, if you will, focuses on appearing spiritual. It focuses on the outside of the cup. And it doesn't really focus and wrestle with or expose the inside of the cup. 
we don't dare expose what's on the inside of the cup, the, the thoughts that are in our hearts and in our minds or the feelings that we have towards other people because we want to appear spiritual before others. So spiritual inauthentic behavior focuses on attending church, lifting our hands in worship. And we can do those things with a good heart, but we can also do those things to hide and mask what's really going on on the inside. Or to actually ease our own consciences because our consciences are crying out and we're like, I know that I'm a terrible person on the inside, but I'm just going to fight it and I'm going to lift my hands rather than just exposing what's going on on the inside and saying, God, this is what's going on and I don't want it there. But if we focus on the inward transformation of our heart, it seems to say that the outside things, the boundary markers, also takes care of themselves. So how do I know if I'm being authentic or inauthentic? Well, do the thoughts that I have and the behaviors that I have when I'm by myself match what I put on display for others? That's the difference. Do I talk about God? Do I talk about the Bible? Do I talk about spiritual things in a natural way? Or when I talk about them, do they seem awkward? Do I try to bring up God in a conversation and it's really not natural for me because I really only talk about God when I'm in a Bible study or when I'm at church? It's not a whole part of my life. I've lived a compartmentalized life where I serve God here, but when I'm in the world, I, I don't really bring that stuff up. Is it a natural part of me? Is it genuine or is it forced? And if it's genuine, it just flows out of a heart that wants to be transformed. Now, I don't think any of us, the moment we get saved, become authentic all of the sudden. And if you struggle with authenticity, you're not going to tomorrow be the most authentic person in the world. But we can take steps to start making sure what's going on in here matches what's going on out here. And making sure that God isn't just something I do in the morning, but He's someone that I communicate with and worship all throughout my day. And that I bring Him into every area of my life. John talks about the, the story of the little boy who went to Sunday school. And you know, when you go to Sunday school, the right answers are always the same. Jesus, God, the Bible, church, Holy Spirit. You know, the church answers. And so the little boy was asked by the teacher, what is brown, furry, has a long tail, and stores up nuts for the winter? And of course, the little boy is so confused and says, I guess the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> and for some of us, that's what we try to do. We try to like sound spiritual, and it's not genuine. You don't have to use church language. You don't have to pray in King James English. It's just the natural overflow of your heart to God. And having conversations with other people about what God is doing in your heart or questions and doubts that you have about who God is or the Scripture, those are okay things. That's what it is to be an authentic follower of Jesus, to wrestle with those things. Not just focusing on looking like a new person, but really becoming a new person. Question number two, am I becoming judgmental, exclusive, or proud? Am I becoming judgmental, exclusive, or proud? 
In Matthew 23, verse 6, Jesus warns that the Pharisees are a danger because they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. The Pharisees were known for focusing on the specific sins and behaviors of the outsiders. And I think sometimes we fall into that same trap. Whether it's those outside the church or just those outside of our denomination or outside of our group or even just those that disagree with me on an interpretation of Scripture and how quick we can become judgmental and exclusive and proud. Pride is the danger for anyone wanting to pursue authentic spirituality because in pride, I forget where I came from. In pride, I begin to think that I'm responsible for my own growth. With pride, I forget that I need the mercy of God. No matter how transformed I become, no matter how much my behavior starts to match the behavior of Scripture, I am in desperate need of the mercy of God every waking moment of my life. And anything good in me is only through the mercy and grace of God. And when I keep that in the center of my heart, it keeps me from being proud. It keeps me from being judgmental. It keeps me from categorizing other people. John really goes into some great detail, and I encourage you to read the chapter this week, about the way that we are, we're tempted to size people up when we meet them. You know, the way we label people, the needy one, the critical one, the ignorant one, the foolish one the proud one, the sinful one. And of course, the way we compare ourselves with others, not out loud, but just measuring them up in our mind and thinking that we are better spiritually than they are because we can clearly see all their flaws and faults, even though you and I have just as many in our own lives. They just look different. And we've gotten used to ours. That's why Jesus said, deal with the log in your eye so that you can see clearly to deal with the speck in your brother's eye. It doesn't say don't deal with the speck in your brother's eye. In fact, if we're going to be a true body of Christ, we are going to help each other deal with the specks in our eye. But you can't do it if you don't first deal with the log that exists in your own eye. That pride, that categorization, that criticalness, that comparison. The third question, am I becoming more approachable or less? In Matthew 23, again, verse 7, Jesus says that the Pharisees love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. Rabbi was a pretty significant term. It was reserved for the, the echelon, the top teachers. And so you wanted to be called when you were called rabbi, it did something for you, and it, it, it made you feel important. And then the rabbis, all of a sudden, again, here's that slow fade, that kettle in a pot, if you will, that, that happens over time. The religious people, the, the rabbis started to think, I have to stay away from those people that might contaminate me. And so they found themselves distancing, distancing themselves from the very people they were actually called to minister to. And the crazy thing is, they used the law to do it. They justified their unapproachableness with the law. I think we fall into that same danger 
yet today. We can excuse our unapproachableness with the line, well, Jesus offended people. I mean, after all, they only don't like me because I'm separate from them. Because they don't like the way that I, they feel when they're around me. That's the same lie that the Pharisees fell into. And the crazy thing is, Jesus comes and they call him rabbi, but yet he's approachable. That's foreign to them. In fact, the Pharisees don't know what to do with it, and they accuse Jesus of compromising. How many of you know Jesus never compromised? We know he didn't because the scripture says there was no, there was no falsehood in him at all. He was truth. And so somehow Jesus came in a way where he, he was approachable. He allowed people to be coming near to him and yet fulfilled the law perfectly. And so the question is in my life, are people prone to draw near to me or do people distance themselves from me? That's a great way to wrestle with whether or not I might be focusing too much on boundary markers or whether I'm focusing on the heart of love. People know when we care about them, and they know when we don't. No matter what we say, they know. Your kids know. They're really good at picking up on it. The fourth one. The fourth one, am I weary and tired for pursuing, in pursuing spiritual growth? Am I weary and tired in pursuing spiritual growth? Not genuine spiritual growth, but the, the type of spiritual growth that Jesus describes in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put it on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Trying to live up to this boundary marker standard is exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's actually caused many people to just give up and walk away from Christ, walk away from church, walk away from it all, because I can't possibly measure up to what other people expect of me. And sometimes that's because people really are expecting it from them. And sometimes it's just the things in our own head that we're putting on other people. Okay, now, sometimes if you grew up in a church where maybe there was a lot of legalism and a lot of demands placed on you, you can carry that with you into current relationships and you can distance yourself from modern day church people and those church people aren't putting those demands on you. You are in your own thoughts and in your own mind and it's just kind of imposed on them because you, you won't become authentic enough to draw near. John, in the, again, from the book, says this is why people inside the church often get so weary. Observing boundary markers and conforming to a religious subculture is simply not a compelling enough vision to captivate the human spirit, and it was not intended to be. The last question, am I measuring spiritual life? It falls light, uh, right in line with this other question. Am I measuring spiritual life in superficial ways? In Matthew 23... 23 and 24, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Now see, Jesus is not telling them to not tithe. He's not saying, don't tithe your spices, don't tithe your increase. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, but you're doing that, you're focusing on these externals, but you're missing the whole point. And the point is justice Mercy and 
faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So how do we know if we're focusing on these externals or we're really letting it get to our heart? Well, John says one way to find out is when someone walks up to you and says, Hey, how are you doing spiritually? How do you answer that question? What comes to your mind? If I were to stop you out here today and say, hey, how are things going for you spiritually? Would your, would, would, what would your quiet time come to your mind? Well, well, I had three, three, four quiet times this week, four out of seven. That's pretty good. I mean, I read my Bible this week. Man, I read it like five days. So I'm doing pretty good spiritually. Oh, I, man, Pastor, I prayed every day this week. I made it to House of Prayer last week. Man, I am doing pretty good spiritually. And the danger of that is when we miss our quiet time for a few days or when we don't read the scripture like we go, then all of a sudden we feel like, well, oh man, I'm just not doing good spiritually. I love how John talks about his, his journaling and how he can even read the Bible and journal and get nothing out of it whatsoever. But, but that's what we're supposed to do as Christians. And it's not a question of, should we read the Bible? Yes. Should we pray? Yes. Could, should we journal? Yeah, it helps. But you can go through all of those motions, and really your heart could not be positioned to be transformed at all. As if in heaven, God has this huge Sunday school chart. Read the Bible today. Star. Woo! Another time through the Bible. Woo! 50-point star right there. And, and we don't intend for that. I mean, most of us start reading the Bible because we know it's life. And we know we need it to be transformed. And we, we start for the right reasons. But over time, it's like I'm just doing it because I know I need to. And I'd be better off reading one verse and letting the Holy Spirit change my entire heart than reading four chapters and not doing anything. And that's what we need to make sure we're using spiritual disciplines as they were intended to bring about the transformation that God hopes for us. John says, I suspect that if someone had asked the Apostle Paul or the Apostle John about their spiritual life, his first question would have been, am I growing in love for God and people? The real issue is what kind of people are we becoming? Practices such as reading scripture and praying are important, not because they prove how spiritual we are, but because God can use them to lead us into life. We are called to do nothing less than to experience day by day what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with so as we go through the week, here's our questions again to ponder. And let me phrase them in a way, and I'm going to put them up on the screen one at a time, but I'm going to put them up at the end all together. So if you want to write them down or take a picture of them, and I want us to ponder these as we go through the week, because the way they're worded in this setting uh, kind of makes them a little bit easier to wrestle with. Number one, in what ways am I preoccupied with appearing to be spiritual? In what ways am I preoccupied 
with appearing to be spiritual? Number two, in what areas am I becoming? Uh, notice how it says that, which areas am I becoming? I mean, it doesn't assume that we're not becoming this. Because this is the nature of human beings. This is the nature of spirituality as we pursue it. Is th- This is the danger, and I need to make sure I'm not walking that path. So in which areas am I becoming judgmental, exclusive, or proud? Where am I categorizing or labeling people or comparing myself with others? Where am I condemning those that I disagree with? Number three. To what degree am I becoming less approachable to other people? And what people are less inclined to approach me? I mean, because we all have people that love to approach us, but who's, who's keeping their distance and why are they doing that? And really wrestle through that. Number four, in what ways do I measure my spiritual life by superficial standards that danger of oh man i had my quiet time today so me and god are good or man uh, god is he's my one desire today and everything i do today i want to connect with him i want to connect with him and i want to display who he is to others and number five which boundary markers do i use to set myself apart from others What boundary markers? Where are those weak things? Where are those things that I keep a tally in my mind and I don't really even recognize it? Those five questions. As you go through this week, wrestle with those. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Holy Spirit, where is this in my life? And if the Holy Spirit comes to you in that moment and says, you're you're good, that's not in your life, cross it off the list. But don't be surprised if he says, hey, look over here. And he doesn't do that to condemn us. He does it because it's keeping us from, keep, from experiencing life. It's just a, it's a weight. It's a burden you and I were never meant to carry. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Remember, the Pharisees never set out to reject the Messiah. In fact, the whole reason they were created was to help prepare people for the Messiah. And yet, when they came, when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, remember what he said? You don't even know the Scriptures. What? I mean, they knew the Scriptures front and back. They could, you could have started something, and they would have finished it for you. What do you mean we don't know the Scriptures? We can fall into that same danger of, pulling a verse here and pulling a verse there and using it here and using it there to appear spiritual and to make others feel less spiritual so that in turn we look more spiritual and still miss the whole point of it all, to love God and to love others. Straining out gnats but swallowing camels. And over the next 10 months, we're going to wrestle with spiritual disciplines and how to use them in a way to grow in our love for God, and to grow in our love for others. Let's pray. As we close today in prayer, over the last couple weeks, I've given opportunity, and I'm going to do it again today, for those that might be in the room right now, and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus. The way that maybe has been described in the book, or in the last few weeks, where you've never acknowledged 
your need of Christ and his sacrifice and you've never entered into a relationship where he becomes your righteousness, where he becomes who you are. He gives you brand new life. And then you live from that place, that place of full identity in Christ Jesus. And so I never want to assume that everyone that's here has made that commitment, has understood that that we have broken God's law, that we don't measure up to the standard, but Christ's death, His sacrifice, was in our place, and you and I now have life because of it. And so if you're here today, and you've never made that commitment, you may have been raised going to church. You have, may have been a, someone who goes to church every day of your life. You may read the Bible and pray daily. But if you've never come to that place where you've acknowledged God, Without Christ's sacrifice, I can't measure up to your standard. I've gone my own way. I'm selfish. I'm proud. I'm, I, I lie. I, I've broken it. I can't live it up, up to that standard. But I believe that Christ died in my place, and I believe that he wants to put his spirit inside of me so that I can display the glory of God in the way that I live my life, so that I can be the new creation that you already designed me to be. If that's you, and that's a commitment you want to make today, would you just slip up your hand right where you are and say, I'm going to make that commitment today. I'm praying that today. I want to make that commitment to God today for the first time in my life. That's me. Then I'm going to assume that everyone in the room has made that commitment. And I'm going to assume that this week we're going to wrestle through some of these issues and we're going to have the Holy Spirit show us some ways that maybe our, our thought process, the way that we view ourselves, maybe needs to change. The way that we view others needs to change. The way that we put demands on ourselves or demands on others needs to be transformed. And as we go through this series together, my prayer is that we would begin to grow in our love for God in a way that is genuine, that is authentic, that is passionate, that we become a body of believers, that we can be real with one another, that we can actually trust that when someone wants to help us see a speck in our eye, that they actually do it because they have our best interest at heart. And that we even welcome it the way that James says, that we would confess our sin one to another. So that we can find healing. And I know that's not going to happen overnight. And I don't expect it to. But that's the journey we want to take together. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that over this week, as we, as we meditate on these scriptures, as we wrestle through these questions that John has posed for us, that you would just open our eyes to see things that we can't see without your help. Our hearts are desperately wicked. They're so deceitful. They always want to make us appear good. But God, we don't want that. We want genuineness. We want to be transformed from the inside out. We don't care what it looks like to others. God, we want true righteousness to flow out of our mouths. God, we want in those moments when pressure is on in our lives, we want what is good and what is true and what is right and what is just to come out of our mouths. God, we don't want to make excuses. We don't want to appear spiritual to others. God, we want that genuine love in our hearts for you and for the people around us. Jesus, show us how to walk in that level of humility where we fulfill the law the way that you did. 
where we're true to the law, the way that you were, but yet we're approachable, where love flows out of our lives, where dignity and honor about the people around us flow out of that. And so, Holy Spirit, we need your help. We cannot do this without you. We can't see it without you, and we can't be transformed without you. And so this week, we want to open our hearts, we want to open our lives, we want to open our minds to you in a way that we never have before. Show us things that we need to see. And shift the way that we think. Help us to renew our minds so that we can become the transformed believers that Christ has made us through His death and resurrection. Father, I ask for your blessing over this body today. God, especially those that are weary. God, they're weary from a lifetime of trying so hard to please you. And I just pray that even in this moment, God, that your love would just cover over that in a way where they sense, God, your, your pleasure over them, not because of what they've done, but because of their identity in Christ Jesus. God, for those that, that have this fear that if they don't try to try harder, that they're never going to overcome that sin that just doesn't seem to get out of their lives. Holy Spirit, convince them this week. Convince them this week that they don't have to focus on the externals as much as they have in the past, but they have to focus more on the internals so that the externals get taken care of. God, I pray give relief to those that are carrying heavy burdens that they were never meant to carry. God, set us free. Set us free to, to be the type of people that please you and honor you in every area of our lives. God, that put you on display. That put you on display in everything that we do in our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, over these next few days, speak to our hearts. Challenge us. Stretch us. Minister to us. Strengthen the things in our hearts that need to be strengthened. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you haven't picked up a copy of the book, I'd encourage you. There is a study guide in the back.